Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez. My guest today is Alex Doman. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Henry. Thanks for having me on. Yep, looking forward to this conversation. We're going to chat about Alex's entrepreneur journey, how he got to where he is today, and the launching of his business, Avec which is a maker of canned drink mixers with healthy ingredients. And we'll chat a bit more about this product. If you want to receive more about the How of Business, including the show notes page for this episode. And also, if you want to schedule a free coaching consultation with me, you can just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 772-837-5700 or visit thehowofbusiness.com. Let me tell you a bit more about Alex. Alex Doman is the co-founder of Avec. Avec is a maker of canned drink mixers with healthy ingredients, including real juices with low or no sugar added and natural botanicals. Before founding Avec, Alex worked as a principal consultant at a boutique management consulting firm in London. He focused on helping consumer-facing businesses develop their strategy and turnaround plans. And eventually, he developed a specialty in hospitality, food, and beverage, advising many of the UK's leading brands. It was while he was working on a project for one of the UK's largest bar chains that he discovered the vast shortcomings in the mixer category and came up with the idea for Avec. We'll explore that in much more detail here in a moment. Growing up in the UK, but of Australian and Canadian heritage, he has always been obsessed with flavor. Alex's uh, often mobile, but we've corrected that. He actually lives in Brooklyn, New York. I knew there was a spot here, Alec, where I had that, Alex, where I had that. But he <laughs> lives in Brooklyn, New York, and he loves food, cultures, and cooking. He graduated from Columbia Business School with an MBA and the London Business School uh, with an MIM, which I think stands for a Master's in Management, correct? MIM? Correct. Yep. And Edinburgh University with a degree in history. We'll find out why. Alex Stoman. Welcome to the show. Excited to be here, Henry. Thanks for having me. Yep. Looking forward to this conversation. Always interested in, in these types of, of journeys and, and the launch with something like this is such a, a unique uh, product. So, but I'd like to start at, at the beginning. And one of the things that always stands out to me is when people get a history degree. So what were you going to do with this history degree back when you were in university? I'm curious. Such a good question, and one I asked myself. Uh, <laughs> and your parents might ask this. <laughs> Certainly my dad. Um, <laughs> I think just to premise the answer, I think that the, the, the education systems in the UK and the US are somewhat different. You know, you do, it is a more academic and specific uh, approach in the UK. So, you, so history, doing a history degree is not as um, kind of out there as it may be here, but it's still... Does not um, does not is not the kind of best degree to do if you are planning to go into business, um, which I kind of found out as you as you mm-hmm. as you kind of highlighted. You know, we're into that's finance because that's the career ended up in, right? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that you know I I, I wanted to do a history degree because I loved it and uh, wanted to be a lawyer, you know, and I wanted to be a lawyer, and I talked to. A bunch of friends of mine who had, had gone into into law and 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 uh, they kind of said don't do it you know so I, I decided <laughs> with my history degree on my way to being a law student that maybe I should do something else and 
you know, if it's not law, what do you do? Uh, you, you know, I'm sure everyone on, on the pod had the same feeling, you know, when they're young, a young person figuring out what they wanted to do. And I just went for the kind of next hardest thing, you know, which <laughs> was, which was, which was banking and went and tried to do that for a bit, ended up at HSBC in a kind of, I would call a kind of faux banking role, really. And really quickly worked out that that was not for me. Worked out two things, I think. Firstly, the banking was not for me. And secondly, that I knew absolutely nothing about business and should probably go and retrain. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I, I left HSBC after a year and went straight into the London Business School Masters in Management, which is sort of like a small or mini pre-MBA um, crash course in a crash course in management, which was really excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similarly in the states, a history, a history degree usually leads to I'm going to law school, so that that's not surprising there. Now, when you say you picked the next hardest thing, were you joking, or is that really who you were then that you were looking for that challenge? Yeah, I I think that. I mean, this is well, we can talk about this in a whole other podcast. I, I I think that you know we do a great disservice to our young people. Um, you know, in terms of helping them figure out what they want to do in their lives, you know, maybe that'll be my next startup. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of figured I wanted to be a lawyer because I was, I was good at writing and, and analytical in some, in some way. And, and it felt like that was a prestigious thing to do. And, and so having not done any of the things or been exposed to any of the things that were, you know, potentially on offer, you know, in brackets, because I did a history degree, uh, it just felt like the the right thing to do. And the more I found out about it, the more I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And then when I when that path kind of decided, I decided it wasn't for me, I, I, I genuinely went, okay, well, what else is there? Consulting, banking, my dad was a consultant. So that felt, that felt boring to me, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, or kind of predictable. So I decided to do the one other thing that I sort of knew of really. Uh, and that was finance. Now, at that time, were you thinking that being a business owner, being an entrepreneur was something you might want to do? Totally. It, it, it's sort of, uh, I I'd be interested to hear, you know, your thoughts on this and, and kind of how many of your guests kind of say that they sort of always knew that they wanted to do something, but I'm sure it's high. I think, you know, from, from a young age, I, I kind of was always uh, trying to do things and you know, entrepreneurial things, whether it's, you know, selling classmates, candy or, or whatever it was. And I guess got programmed into taking a professional route to a degree, but always kept a, a sort of somewhat janky Excel sheet with ideas on and, and was constantly kind of sorting them just naturally, you know, mm-hmm. really, really around problems I'd like to solve more than anything else. What, what was holding you back back then from jumping into one of those ideas i think a couple things really one you know belief in myself and ability to execute on on any or all of them and the second i i came from a um and we'll get into i came from a background both of my parents were professionals and it felt scary to do something that was not more traditional you know as a doctor lawyer banker, consultant, you know, or other. Um, and so it just, it felt like it was something I was always going to do, but I wasn't ready for. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. And to answer your question, it's really been a, a mix. There's a lot of people, of course, that fall into that category. I've always felt I was entrepreneurial, 
but didn't know how to get there. So similar to what you're sharing, that was my experience as well. I knew I wanted control. I knew I wanted more and I didn't want to be limited by others, but I didn't know how to get there. So it, so it took me until my mid twenties to start my first business. But then I have people who come on the show who had no aspirations. It kind of came to them later. So it really is a mix. And that's why I'm always interested in finding out how people arrive at the point where they have to start a business, because I think that's what it takes. And that's also why I was curious about the next hardest thing, because I think one of the myths also is that starting a business is easy. And you're, you're sure I'm proof of the fact that especially the type of business that you've launched, it's not easy, right? <laughs> It's not, it's not easy, and I, I definitely think it depends on what industry you choose on the level of difficulty, but I think all businesses are tough to start and definitely m more tough than anything I've done. I think that will be something which will be consistent across the board, mm -hmm. mainly because you're, you're really focused on wanting to solve an, a problem. And what you don't realize, I think you're getting yourself in for is, you know, not only solving a problem about, you know, product market fit or, or, or whatever you're, you know, on whatever you're working, but you're also figuring out how to become a boss, how to uh, do taxes, how to, you know, sell into different markets, um, et cetera. It's, it's, it is a very complex problem. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's tough. And you do, you do, and I'm sure this is also something that people say you do miss is a double edged sword. I mean, it's the best thing I've ever done. The hardest thing I've ever done. And, but you, of course you do miss those, those days when you're going into the office and you've got right. a predictable, you've got a predictable job that, you know, with someone looking after you and giving you stuff. I mean, it feels like a million miles away from yeah, where I'm checking out on Friday and you know, it's not your worries what happens over the weekend necessarily that that's a, it's a big shift. So is a, a was a VEC is your first business venture or did you have something else before then? A VEC is my first my first business venture, I would say, in terms of you know, proper proper I'm gonna devote my time to this. I, I've had had a couple of others that I that I kind of, you know, was had whipped up or had, you know, put some, you know, I, I kind of you know, put put some legal documents, sign some legal documents for, but but not really. I mean, we can discuss them if you want. But I, the, the consulting firm that I did work for before, I didn't start, but there was a, a situation where where basically a larger consulting firm, a partner from a larger consulting firm, spun off her own uh, consulting business from, and I I because was was sort of one of the first people there, so that kind of wet my appetite for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. We'll dive into the ideation process for Avec, but what I'm curious about now is what is it that leads to you finally taking this big action of launching Avec? What, what is it that happens in your life that you finally are ready to do this, to start a business? I've been thinking about it for so long and I had seen, you know, this crazy idea spreadsheet that we were talking about, I'd seen ideas come off of that spreadsheet and into the real world and become successful businesses. Mm -hmm. And I'd seen enough of those happen to realize that it wasn't the ideas that were holding me back from doing it. It was whether I thought I could execute on it or not, if that made sense. Like clearly these ideas were, were okay enough so that other people were able to do it. And so once I found an idea that I felt like I could, 
execute on, which was Avec, uh, and that was potentially big enough for it to be worth my time, because of course market size is, is such a big thing. Mm-hmm. I jumped at the opportunity. And, and in fact, I wrote my business school application letter based off, you know, I didn't say mention Avec in, in the application letter, but that was what I was applying for was to go and figure out both, you know, how to launch a business, you know, in a, in a more, um, you know, in a, in an environment where if it didn't all go well, I could perhaps do something else and, but and much more importantly, find a co-founder. And, and, and that had been the thing that I had struggled to do. A lot of my friends felt the same way I had felt around, you know, being a bit scared about setting up a business and wanting to follow a professional route. So I'd always struggled to kind of find a mm-hmm. co-founder. So why the need for a co-founder? Was it in part to give you this, this confidence or were you looking to complement skills you didn't have or both? Why did you feel like you needed a co-founder? Several reasons, I think. I think I'm a, I'm a believer that teamwork is, is, is sort of, you know, how you solve the most difficult problems and that the best way to get, you know, teamwork is to kind of, share some of the burden and, and co-founder being the most obvious way of doing that. I, I also am very well aware of my weaknesses, especially when it came to this business. As you, if you can imagine the spreadsheet, I'm kind of looking through these ideas and we take Avec, which we'll get onto, but and Avec is, you know, I wanted to launch it in America and I wanted to, and it's, you know, it's a CPG brand. And whilst I had consulting experience in hospitality and to a lesser extent CPG, I didn't have a specific marketing background and really you know these cpg products are as much about products as they are about brand and i i I wanted to find someone who was a real expert in in the space who could who could kind of you know help help make a vaca rock star brand or product and and that's what i was really looking for is and your partner d had that background d had that background I, i genuinely met her on the first day of business school she was in my cluster which is sort of, you know, like mini working groups of 70 people within a much larger year. And I knew immediately. And uh, I actually you knew of, immediately that she was a match for you as, as far as a, a business, a partner. I knew immediately that as soon as she kind of, dis- as soon as we got to know each other and she kind of discussed a little bit more about her background, that she would be an ideal candidate to be a co-founder for me, mm-hmm. given her background, because she, she'd spent seven years in, in, in marketing and advertising. Yeah. Now, it's, it's a, you're about a year into this uh, relationship. Well, more than that, the relationship. But how are you making it work? You know, soft, when you're friends, which it sounds like you were initially, although initially right off the bat, you were thinking this might be someone who could be a co-founder. But how do you make that work? It's a tricky thing to have co-founders where you're also going into it as friends and making sure that doesn't get damaged. Are there some things that you either ground rules that you set up front or things that you do to help preserve that relationship? We, we have done, we, we, we have got a founders agreement where we kind of allocate roles and responsibilities quite in a quite defined way. It's not, I have to admit, it's not easy in, in the sense that, I don't think any co-founder relationship is particularly easy. And, and I know that the literature was had been very against starting businesses with friends, but I think recent times have shown that actually a lot of people who started businesses with friends, it's been a 
it's been a great thing. And D and I's relationship whilst we're friends has always been in the professional context because we were at business school. So, mm-hmm. or in a somewhat professional context. So, right. um, you know, and, and it's not easy. We have this, we have this, this um, contract and we've had founder coaching as well, which is, which was very helpful. Uh, and it's something we just, we have to work on. So we we meet every week at least, you know, try and do it on Mondays and on Fridays to kind of level set and figure out priorities and, and work together and and also it's interesting because we are from very different backgrounds i'm you know a white male from the uk you know or australian canadian british um which you know i think is always think is a particularly unsexy combination um <laughs> and and d is you know a black girl from the bronx uh and you know grew up here and and so there is a massive diversity in terms of both in terms of thought you know so that's it's something we always say is is our is our greatest strength Mm -hmm. here we feel like if we can figure out you know if if we're successful in figuring out how to work together and bring our diverse opinions to the table it's um you know a great strength yeah, it's interesting, you know, going back to your point, everybody says, oh, don't go into business with friends and family, but it seems like everybody does. So there's something <laughs> there that we'll have to explore someday. All right, let's 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 dive into it a bit more. Uh, introduce Avec, what is the product uh, and how you sell it? Introduce that if you would, please. Sure. Avec is a better for you mixer. So think the next ginger beer, next uh you know, tonic water. Um, the idea, the idea really came from a frustration. And this is a much longer story, but it came from a frustration of of having to compromise when you get to the bar between, you know, a delicious drink like a delicious cocktail that's full of sugar and preservatives and, and what have you, and uh, a healthy drink which is you know a vodka soda. Um, but it tastes, you know, kind of awful. Mm-hmm. And why can't you have a, you know, a really delicious, tasty, you know, drink that is also low in sugar and low in calorie? And that was kind of that was sort of the frustration of, you know, the pain point. And 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 the mission is is to help people drink better. And and, and we we say we are we say we're rethinking the mixer category for the modern drinker, healthier, tastier, and more sustainable. Okay. You had this idea in this spreadsheet of ideas, so there was a kind of the seed of it there, but how long from when you really thought, all right, let's develop this idea to launching last year, I believe it was, how long of a period of time was that? So from when until when? From when you earnestly started this as an idea to develop it to launching last year, how long was that period of time? So we started working on it really in the summer of 2019, and then we launched a year later. All right. So, so we launched into that. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. which is pretty fast. Do you do you feel like at that point in time when you started it, did you already have it fairly well fleshed out then in your mind, or was it just the seeds of an idea? I had it pretty well fleshed out. I mean, this this. You know, if you look at the competition in the mixer space, you've got Fever Tree, who are this British tonic water brand, and then some American kind of, I, I guess you'd call them copycats or or similar type mixer brands like Q, and then, you know, who also do a range of tonics and ginger beers and whatever. And they're all packed full of sugar and preservatives. Mm. And so the mission is quite clear, right, which is just to provide an alternative, something which tastes as good, 
as a full sugar tonic water or ginger beer or, or grapefruit soda that you would mix with a tequila or gin, um, but make it dramatically less sugar and calories without using artificial ingredients. Mm-hmm. Are you competing in this space, though, with all of the other locale seltzers that are become so popular? Do you feel like you're competing with them as well? Or do you really see yourself very separate segment in this mixer segment? I, when, we, when we began the journey, it was so clear. You know, we were rethinking the mixer category for the modern drinker. And I think what's been so interesting about being in market in this particular time period is that it just so happens that we are, you know, in in this period that is where people are totally rethinking how they drink. You know, mm-hmm. we're launching this new business in a time where consumption habits are changing dramatically. You know, people are trading out alcohol for, you know, non-alc options, and, and those range from functional to kind of, you know, functional THC to functional sort of adaptogen type things. People are just drinking, you know, better alcohol. So, you know, mm. elevating, you know, going from, you know, very cheap tequila to much more expensive. I mean, bottles of, of tequila like Casamigos, which, you know, if you told me three, two or three years ago that the, the most, a lot of people would be going out and spending 60 to $75 on a bottle of Casamigos instead of $25 on a Jose Cuervo, I would have been very surprised. Right. Um, did, did, did COVID have an impact on that? I think COVID has definitely accelerated these these trends as people have spent more time at home mm-hmm. thinking about what they drink and do, and in some cases drinking a lot, working out that that was bad for them, you know, and then <laughs> and then kind of reevaluating right. reevaluating what what their plan was. But you know, watch this space. Really, I mean, it, I can't cannot tell you how fast it's moving. Um, we went from a situation where there were no, and this is going to shock you, I think. Um, went from no zero alcohol liquor stores in New York, you know, and you would rightly say, what is a zero alcohol liquor store? Um, Only seven months ago. And we now have four uh, dedicated non-alcoholic liquor stores in New York. So what is a non-alcoholic liquor store? They are selling basically everything for this adult occasion that I say is changing so much. Um, You know, this adult drinking occasion, to be more specific, that is changing so much that is non-alcoholic. So they have, you know, a, a, a bunch of great brands in there who are relatively famous, like Kin and Gia, who are, who offer kind of alcohol. You know, in Kin's case, like what they call them, that they kind of have adaptogens to to kind of provide a different experience to alcohol. And there are a whole bunch of businesses doing that. You know, how can we stimulate you in a different way? Right, and because in this category are these not energy drinks, but these, I know my, my daughter drinks one, but I can't think of the name of it that has these more natural stimulants. So that falls into this category, those types of drinks. Is that right? Totally. You know, everything from ashwagandha to ginseng to, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of other. Adaptions. But how does a VEC fall in here? Because you designed a VEC specifically to be a mixer with alcoholic uh, spirits, right? Or am I missing something there? We, we, we really set off on a mission to help people drink better. You know, and, and in, 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 in doing that, we were rethinking the mixer category. The intention was always to kind of blow it out eventually. And, you know, the market has just moved in a different way. It's kind of, you know, you can't predict the future, right. uh, obviously. And, and, I, and I think that a lot of our customers are drinking Avec, you know, because it's a high flavor, 
Mm-hmm. You know, our products are really high flavor and very, you know, dramatically less sugar, 90, 80, 90% less sugar than the nearest alternative. And so people are, you know, either drinking us by themselves or mixing them with these non-alcoholic spirits. Right. So that's the other side. So you have this one side that is looking to kind of uh, offer a different effect to alcohol. And then you have the other side of the non-alcoholic movement, which is mm-hmm. looking to replace the taste of alcohol, but without the alcohol. So fake tequilas, fake rums, fake, you know, whatever, whatever. And, you know, if you're going to go to all the lengths of, you know, drinking a non-alcoholic tequila for your body, uh, you know, to be healthier, then mixing it with a full sugar mixer with 16 mm-hmm. grams of sugar, you know, four teaspoons of sugar per serve yeah. is a slightly crazy thing to do. Undermines the whole thing. Yeah. Undermines the whole thing. So, so we found ourselves as kind of the mixer of choice in, in this new and really quickly growing non-alcoholic space. I see. I saw that you were in a lot of physical locations in Manhattan. So some of those are a good chart chunk of those are these non-alcoholic liquor stores that are popping up. Is that what you're saying? The people who reach out to us are the non-alcoholic liquor stores and the people who do insane velocity are these non-alcoholic liquor stores. Hmm. So we, we do the same amount, you know, in sales out of one of these small footprint stores as, as you'd expect to do from a large whole foods, you know, um, maybe more in fact. Yeah. Um, well, it's your, it's an alignment. I got to think of your product is really well aligned with the person who goes to those particular establishments. Totally. And we, we do have a bunch of other accounts, but the interesting thing about New York is that it's very particular and you cannot sell non-alcoholic beverages in liquor stores. So we can't be in, you know, a, a liquor store. Oh, okay. Uh, Did not know so, that. That's a, yeah, that's a law, I'm assuming? That is, is a, it's a sort of hangover from prohibition. <laughs> so it's so that people can't, you know, buy their drink and their mixer in the I same see. place and get drunk immediately, you know. Right, right. Um, or if that's what saying. happens, right? But yeah, I know, an archaic lead behind it. People who are actually looking to get drunk are just going to drink it straight anyway, aren't they? <laughs> so let's be honest. But but you know, and so that's why we're excited. We're, we're going to be moving into mm-hmm. we're moving into New England, Illinois, and and soon to be elsewhere where we can be sold in liquor stores. And okay. and I think we'll see the same sort of response that we we're hoping to see the same response in those stores that we've seen in our, our non-alcoholic liquor store partners. This is Henry Lopez, pausing this episode for a moment to tell you about my trusted service partner for everything related to websites and SEO, Adam Kirk and his company, Ustas. Ustas specializes in website development and online marketing for small business and has been a business partner of the Howa business for almost three years now. I am also a client of Ustas and have a trusted relationship with their founder, Adam Kirk. You may recognize Adam's name as he's been a guest on this podcast several times over the past few years. Now more than ever, you need a website that represents your small business as a professional and viable business online. Your website is making a first impression for your business. The question is, what kind of impression is it making? Is it creating confidence and making it easy for potential new customers and clients to clearly understand what you offer? and how to contact you? Or does your site look like a relic from the 1990s? Or far worse, you have no website at all, which unfortunately is the case for many small businesses today. Well, here is a great opportunity to finally get the website your business deserves without the fear of not knowing how much it's going to cost 
or paying a small fortune. Ustas has affordable small business website plans starting at as low as $9.99 for a beautiful and effective informational website that will attract new customers and make a fantastic first impression. There are no long-term contracts and you will know exactly what you are going to get for this set price. A professional and responsive, customized website that will help you grow your business. Ustas also has a plan that costs you nothing up front and just $250 a month. Visit thehowabusiness.com for more information. And when you connect with Ustas, just let them know you heard about the offer on the How of Business to receive a special price on your custom website. Now's the time to get your website working for you and helping you grow your business. Let me ask you a few rapid fire questions. Um, the funding of the launch, where did the money come from to get started? We, were, we raised, and looking back, it's, it seems like an impossibly small amount of money. We raised $275,000, $273,000 from friends and family. And we were, we were lucky enough to, to win a, a bunch of startup competitions, you know, both you know, at, at the school and, and, and elsewhere that, that gave us a little bit more, and, you know, we got a $10,000 grant from Columbia, which they gave us for free for winning one of them. And then we, we won, we were one of a handful of winners um, to win the kind of big startup competition at Columbia, which gave us a further well, investment of $25,000. Mm-hmm. So that's where the majority of the money came from. Who, uh, where are you making this product? Where is it being manufactured? So we started in Brooklyn and then we moved up to Vermont. And it's one of the great kind of unknowns of the beverage industry is, is how difficult this process of figuring out where to get your product made is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's sort of, I would say, the kind of biggest hurdle to, to setting up a grade. This is a third-party manufacturer, I'm assuming, that's making it for you according to your specifications. Correct. Although you have to be there with them as, as they make it to, to sort of ensure product quality. But yes, mm-hmm. you're, you, you, you get a what's called a co-manufacturer to, to make mm-hmm. it for you. And you, you'd love to do it yourself. We'd love to do it ourselves. But the reality is, is that, you know, the machinery required to, to get, to make cans is, is incredibly expensive. Yeah, so, be a little bit more than the 273, right? Totally. Yeah, it takes exactly. some more money. Uh, the distribution model, now I can buy it online. You're in some of these select locations, at least in Manhattan. What's and then I think you're doing some wholesale, but give me at a high level the the brief summary on the distribution model now and going forward. Sure, I mean we launched in the middle of COVID, so we'd intended we'd intended to be a very experience-led, you know, wholesale-driven brand, starting starting places like hotels and and uh, music festivals and event venues and that sort of thing, and then COVID hit and and uh, that sort of changed that strategy pretty quickly. So we became about being digitally native and, and D2C focused. And, and that's where we we are today. So we are focused about 70% online and about 30% wholesale. And I think as we start to come out of the pandemic, that is going to start shifting the other mm-hmm. way back and back in favor of wholesale. It's If I did the math right, it's about $3 a can, at least online, which is a little on the pricey side. Am I doing the math wrong or would tell me about you the are doing, you're doing the math. Absolutely. Right. It is $3 a can online that includes shipping. So that's, okay. that's, yeah, that's, fair. Yeah. Um, that's why it's slightly more expensive. And then in store, it is slightly cheaper. So it's, it's um, four for 10. 
uh, bucks. But the, but the, the the reality is 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 and this is something worth touching on is that you know when you uh you know we, we, as I said sort of midway through the product we're rethinking the mix category by making it healthier, tastier, and more sustainable. And in order to do those things, it is just more expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, we we use real juice. No one else uses real juice. Um, none of our competitors use real juice that is not from concentrate. Um, we use fresh juice. Uh, you know, everyone else uses cane sugar and citric acid and a bunch of different preservatives that make things easier to easier to make, cheaper to make. Um, Etc. So we will always be a little bit more expensive than our competition. But your target customer is, as you've already alluded to, as to what they're paying for, for example, for spirits, uh, they're willing to pay for that quality, it seems. They're willing to pay for that quality. I think the it is going to be one of the things that we will be focused on improving. So you well, know, because you're also, you're also going to get attacked by if a larger competitor, better funded competitor, mm-hmm. they're going to try to kick you out by competing on price aren't they totally and we've already seen people kind of mimic our flavors to an extent i I, I really seemingly mimic our flavors i think that what we're trying to do though is be sort of like the siggy's yogurt of the mixer space so just set the bar set the bar so high from a health and quality perspective that no one you, you know you would be somewhat crazy to compete with with us from from that perspective, you know, in terms of the lengths that you have to go to in terms of sourcing and and, and price, you know. Um so they will they 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 will come after us. They are price cutting at the moment, but I think that at two dollars to two dollars fifty a can, which is sort of target price, I think we we're we're pretty good value. Mm-hmm. When uh, are you planning to be profitable? The the age old question it, it will depend on on our growth trajectory and, and how closely we can stick to plan. But I, but I think you, you look to be profitable, you know, in beverage only really when you are looking to kind of turn the business from a high growth business into, you know, into um, a cash generative business. And, and the likelihood is, is if the plan is roughly, you know, the, 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 the kind of trajectory in beverages, you're looking to try and get to, a $20 million, $25 million run rate, and then figure out at that point, you know, do you sell to a big beverage business or do you take that on mm-hmm. yourself and, 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 and complete the journey yourself? And so that's roughly the timeline that you would look to make that decision. And so to get you there right now, if I understood you correctly, well, before we started recording, you're, you're in the process of raising funds for the next, next, next round. Is that right? We are. And, and we should we'll be making a we'll be making a announcement relatively soon about raising our first proper round which will be around a million dollars which is very exciting so we should be able to do a little bit you know i can't believe we've got all this way of two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, but <laughs> but you know we'll be able to do a little bit more and, and make more of a noise yeah well, you mentioned uh, the opportunities that you had, winning competitions. Tell me also about how we get we came to be connected, which is your experience with XRC Labs and their accelerator program. How did that help? Sure. So XRC is a sort of market-leading consumer accelerator, I guess, on the East Coast. And they actually found us. 
Mm. Amazingly enough, they, they approached us and asked us and we said no. And there was this lovely woman who's called Kirsten, who's, who's I think since left, who was very persuasive and, and gave us kind of like a special deal to, to join, which was not quite, by the time they, you know, we had kind of thinking about joining, we were somewhat more developed than most accelerator mm-hmm. businesses are, which tends to be right, you know, either before launch or around launch. Um, but it's not, that's not true for all. Um, and, and depends on the accelerator, et cetera. But so we got, a, we got a different deal, which is more of a kind of investment deal. So that's, that's, they sort of joined the cap table as sort of like a venture investor. And what else did you gain from it in hindsight? I mean, that initially, like you said, you were somewhat resistant, but beyond the uh, infusion of some money and an investment, what else did you get from them? Yeah, I think they were really helpful at introducing us to experts. You know, we, they introduced us to a great lawyer. They introduced us to a great DTC marketing business and, and, and sort of helping us with their sort of best in class network and, mm-hmm. and, and, and understand, you know, helping us come up to speed quickly in, in terms of the various things that we were deficient at. Yeah. I do think interestingly enough, and this is something may, that may come up on your podcast a lot is the move to virtual, I think is a really interesting one for, for startups who are reliant on creating a great buzz internally um, and those value adds inter- you know personal interactions that you have whilst in person you're talking and about within the organization within the organization but in this case within the organization and within the accelerator i think right, that right. virtual accelerators are not nearly as effective we, we were virtual for a whole time and um, it was a good experience but i'm sure it would have been even better oh yeah had it been in person because we sort of missed out on, on that in person yeah totally that makes sense all right. I know you've got, uh, we were talking about a, a discount and offer for our listeners uh, to get some of this great stuff online. So tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. We'd love to offer a 15% discount to all of your listeners. Um, the discount code is AVEC loves H O B. Um, that is A V E C loves H O B. Fantastic. I'm making a note of it. I'll have it on the show notes page again, uh, or also rather for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. So if you don't get that discount code, great opportunity to try this product and support this business, especially if you're up there in that Northeast area, because it's a local Brooklyn business. So thank you for that offer for our listeners. Uh, Let's talk about a book recommendation, Alex. I'm always looking for book recommendations. There's a book that comes to mind that you would recommend. Yes, this is actually very exciting. I'm I'm having one of those moments where the current book that I'm reading is just fabulous and will, you know, somewhat life changing. And it's called Humankind by Rutger Bregman. I, I'm sure I mispronounced that, mm-hmm. but it's basically about, um, you know, he, 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 he <laughs> it's a very positive book about humanity after many books that were have been mm-hmm. less positive. So it's exciting. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Someone else had mentioned that to me. I have not read it, but I appreciate the recommendation. We'll have a link to it as well on the show notes page. All right. Before we wrap it up, I just want to go back to one question I didn't ask about it. Curious as to how, how did you prototype this? And then did you get it into bars to get feedback? Just tell me a little bit about what that process was like as you arrived at the, you know, the final formulation of you will for those first flavors. We spent probably five months making our formulas. It started in my kitchen 
and really each of them each of the formulas was aimed at displacing an existing fan favorite so you know ginger beer uh, soda and lime cranberry juice grapefruit juice all with the intention of meeting or beating them on flavor and then crushing them on health you know and so and were you doing all of this while you kept your job or had you already left your position and were doing this full time well, I was, at, I was doing my MBA. So I was ah, doing my MBA I and I was, I was doing this on the side. And then I took it to professional, form, you know, once, once I'd kind of got roughly where I wanted to go, I took it to professional formulator who's just a genius. And we worked together, you know, with my co-founder to hone these recipes into more commercial, um, into more commercial recipes. And then we went and bunch, did a bunch of consumer testing. So we, okay. we, we did, you know, I think three or four rounds of intense consumer testing to figure out whether it was worth doing and which was, which was good and which was bad and what needed to change. Okay. Interesting. All right. Thanks for sharing that. All right. We'll wrap it up, Alex. What's, what's one thing you want to stick away from this conversation that we've had about launching a CPG product like yours and that experience? One thing you want us to take away? I think to be flexible and to, I mean, my learning, at least my learning has been to remain flexible and to keep learning. And that is a very generic and boring answer, but it is so true. You, as an entrepreneur, you you have to be open to a changing environment and changing circumstances, and and you know understand understand what's going on and take action. I think it's at the essence of what it takes to be an entrepreneur, because what I see is some people come into business thinking, you know, you touched on it briefly that it's going to be somewhat similar in that regard to the corporate world where it's predictable. And that's the last thing small business is, right? And what I see is sometimes people get really frustrated with that. It like, it almost shows that maybe they're not cut out to be entrepreneurs. I think to be an entrepreneur, you almost have to embrace that things are not going to go as planned. And so you have to be flexible. And then the always learning, I think that's just, that's just the way it is in life. You got to always continuously be learning. So Thanks for sharing that. When when you were about to launch during COVID, did you have thoughts about delaying the launch? We did. I think that it, we were just too far in and we mm. were so confident. I mean, we, yeah. we were so confident and remain confident that it is bananas to drink increasingly good alcohol with the same old crappy mixes. Mm. Excuse my French. Yeah, no, I and, 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 uh, that's the, that's, the, that's the sort of crazy confidence that you sort of need. And so we were just like, we'll figure it out. And we were excited, to be honest. We were excited about becoming a DC business because we, we had already thought that that might be a better way anyway um, because it provides you with more flexibility and enables you to learn things faster. You know, you get more information, more customer data, et cetera. So we, we, felt, we felt that it was definitely on balance a bad thing for the business, but it was definitely not terminal. Yeah. Where do you want us to go online to learn more about Avec? I think just go to www.avecdrinks.com. You'll see our 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 website, and we, we we get quite a lot of information there. And you can scroll through and have a look at all our fun ingredients and our mission, and check out our different flavors. And you can use your new discount code as well, which is exciting. That's, right. that's <laughs> the most exciting part. I love where you have all of the recipe ideas. I think that's that's brilliant. All right. Fantastic, Alex. Thank you for this great conversation, for sharing all of this information and for taking the time to be with me today. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been, um, I've had a great time. Thank you. 
This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me in this episode of The How of Business. My guest today, again, was Alex Doman. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at our website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.